All right, uh, let me pray, and uh, we'll get started. Lord, thank you for your presence. Um, thank you for visiting us uh, Sunday here and making yourself known uh, in our midst. Thank you for stirring us and moving us, uh, causing us to know you, and for uh, liberating us, setting us free to run in the path of your commands. God, as we position ourselves to walk before you, um, I just ask that tonight you set some perspective for us and give us uh, a vision of things as you see it from eternity's sake and uh, cause us to act and live in such a manner. We love you. Amen. Amen. All right. <clears throat> so last week uh, we talked a little bit about living before, uh, from before the Lord and um, in the sight of God as servants, and uh, to use and leverage our position as sons for the sake of serving God and uh, allowing Him to dictate what we do and what we're involved in. So uh, this week I felt it was appropriate and important that we move into um, living with. Uh, an eternal vision and perspective. Um, I, I, there were a few things that kind of triggered this over the last couple of months, um, and one was, was really kind of interesting. As a man, he was writing. Um, he had been invited to speak at a graduation uh, with commencement ceremony, and he went in and he said, you know, I feel kind of stupid. Um, you know, all the fanfare of inviting me here to speak to you guys because... You're running a marathon, and you're at mile two, and we're throwing you a party and telling you what a big deal it is that you just passed mile two marker, and you've got 24.2 to go. And it was such a great, valuable illustration how, at a young age, we get so fixated on the next four years and our latest accomplishment that we lose sight that we should be living not only with a 5, 10-year, 20-year vision, but with a billion-year vision. Literally, a billion-year vision. Um, so, I want to talk about that tonight. And it sounds, it sounds so outlandish that it's almost hard to think about um, and conceptualize. So, we'll see, what we can, we'll see what we can come up with that way to make it a little bit easier to grasp. But first and foremost, let's establish that as children of God, we are... Uh, we are residents, we are members of another kingdom. We were not meant for this world as it sits today. There are things about the world that are amazing and beautiful and are going to be redeemed and restored, but we are people from another realm when we're born as children of God. So we will feel out of place regularly on the earth, and that's appropriate. There will be things about it that we love, and there will be things about it that we're not so fond of. Um, so that's just some context uh, to understand as we look forward and say, how am I going to live in light of eternity? So in James, he, he makes this statement, your life is but a vapor, and then it vanishes away. And if you've ever heard Leonard Ravenhill read it with his English accent, it's way cooler. Um, but your life is but a vapor, and then it vanishes. And um, <clears throat> there are seasons of life that feel like they're never going to end. 
when you're in school, it feels like it's never going to end. When you're um, single and you're waiting to get married, it feels like the, year, the, the years of singleness are never going to end. Um, as a Christian, I spent like three or four years in that period. It felt like seven eternities. Because um, you're like, you're praying, you're begging, you're, you're giving up, you're, um, and it, it just feels like one of those seasons it's never going to end, and then you get married, and, um, and then you get married. Um, there are seasons where you have small children, for some of you, you don't know what I'm talking about, just be thankful right now. Um, no, but there are seasons that feel like they're never going to end, and so we tend to forget that at some point we're going to look back on our experience here and we're going to go, it was so fast. It was a blink of an eye. It was so short. It was as though, but a memory. Because we were, we were truly meant for eternity. We were meant to live for billions of years and that's how we're going to spend eternity. Is billions upon billions upon billions of years. In the presence of God. In perfection. How often do we think about this reality? Honestly, rarely, right? Rarely do we walk around with a conscious thought that I'm so excited about five billion years from now with Jesus. What am I going to be doing three billion years from now? Usually, I'm just trying to figure out Jimmy John's or Border Grill for lunch. Jimmy John's, Border Grill. I had Jimmy John's last week. I had Border Grill three times this week, but they've got the Border Burrito and this is like, or the taste, you know, the steak tostada salad, which I always get, but, right? This is more, <laughs> yeah, there you go. This is more of our thought line. Rarely do I find myself wrestling. A billion years from now, I want to be overseeing Rome. But this is what we were made for, and this is actually what should consume much of our thought. The, the apostles wrote this way. Eternity was consistently in their thinking. It had to be. How do you endure the sufferings that they did without living in the reality that this is not your home? Our life is but a vapor, and then it vanishes away. So if we do stop for a moment... And I hope it doesn't just end at a moment's consideration, but that it becomes a a way of life for us. That we consider our lifespan in the context of eternity. We understand that it's just, it's a snap and it's over. And then eternity is, uh, it's upon us. And all the, the, the decisions that we made in that moment affect how we spend billions upon billions upon billions of years. And when we look at our lives in the context of eternity, we go, wow, I have such a short amount of time to do anything. Well, then how how now shall I live? So I, I started listing things that right away started coming to mind for me, some questions. When my vapor vanishes, what will remain? My life is but a vapor and it vanishes away. When my vapor vanishes and my life is gone 
and I'm swept up into eternity with, with the Lord in heaven, or he comes back, either one I'm, is great by me. But when I'm done here, what remains? Will anything that I put my hand to endure? Will I leave a legacy? What will that legacy be if I do? Will it be a good legacy? I could be really good at leaving a bad legacy. What will endure when I'm gone? What will be my reward? Was I faithful? And one of the things was, will I remember my days with gratitude or with shame? So just for a, for a few minutes tonight, I want to I try to, to take a step to the other side of the curtain, so to speak. We don't need to because when we're born of the Spirit, we're already living in that eternal realm, yes? Well, I want to take just a little while and try to say, you know what, I think we should try to make this a habit, a way of thinking continuously where we, we look at our life now almost in retrospect, even though we're looking forward, making our decisions going this way. Do you follow? Um, I was having a conversation with my sister last week about raising kids, and I said, you know, I don't have all the right answers um, at all. I try to be around people who have gone through this at least once, and if they're grandparents, it's better yet because they've gotten to see somebody else go through it and make a lot of the same mistakes they did or hopefully different ones. And so I said, try to be in your own mind like you're 50 or 60 years old, and you're looking at your kids in the way they're raising their kids, and you have all of hindsight with you, what decisions would you make now about how you raise your kids? What things would you do that would affect what your life is like now that you're 50, 30 years later? So we're going to try to do kind of that same idea. So just for a moment, imagine that you're, you're in heaven, right? You're standing in the presence of the saints, hopefully right around the throne. And after you get up off your face, you look and Paul, with the scar around his neck from where he's beheaded, stands to your right. Peter, David, Moses, Jonathan, they surround you. You're standing with these heroes who gave everything. It's the first thing you think when you look back at your life and how you lived as you stand in this company. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Second thing is, did the things I was involved in when I look back, improve my position for all eternity? Did the things that I was involved in in my vapor improve my position in eternity? Third question. Did the way I spent my time have eternal implications or was it all just for satisfaction in the moment? Fourth. Am I celebratory over the things I did or am I ashamed?
Fifth, did I remain faithful over the years? And I'm going to define faithfulness in just a minute. And then lastly, do I belong in this company? Peter, Paul, David. Do I belong in this company or not? So first, let's, let's talk about standing amidst the saints. Now, we know that getting into heaven is a gift, right? We know there's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to leverage it, convince God that we're good enough. I deserve this. You should somehow hook me up. I'm the one and only. We can't do that. Getting access into heaven is a gift, totally. We all get that, right? There's nobody that would contend that, correct? Oh, okay, no, he's good. Um, So getting into eternity is a gift, but how we spend eternity depends completely about how we spent our lives on earth. How we spend our eternity, the status, the wealth, all of it depends entirely upon how we spent our lives on earth. So there's this kind of idea out there that when we get to heaven or Jesus comes back, it's egalitarian. And it's not. The Bible says so. I'm not just making this up. It's not everybody's on the same playing field. There are different levels of wealth. There are different levels of leadership and authority and responsibility. You guys remember the parable of the talents? Yeah? And he gives them ten talents. It's in Luke 19. He gives them ten talents, five talents, two talents. Here. Here. Do something with these. The guy who invests the ten and produces a return, what does Jesus give him? What does the master give him when he comes back? Do you remember? You just invested ten talents. It's like, let's say it's ten days wages, or let's say it's a couple thousand bucks. Okay? Ballpark. You get two thousand bucks from God. Here, what are you going to do with this? You come back and you're like, I invested it. I had two. I got four now. The master comes back and he's like, what'd you do with my 2,000 bucks? And you're like, pow, 4,000 bucks. What would you expect in return? If it were me and I was in a business setting, I'd probably be like, well, maybe I get a 5% kickback, right? I just, you know, I invested as 2,000, I got 4,000. Maybe I can expect a couple hundred bucks. Here you go, buddy, a little pat on the butt. Good game. Jesus goes, the master looks to him and says, well done, good and faithful servant. I entrusted you with 10 talents. I'm going to give you 10 cities. I'm going to give you 10 cities for your faithful investment. We have to remember that when Jesus tells a parable, it's primarily said in the context of a kingdom, which is eternal. We get really hung up on the, I'm going to invest now and I'm going to get something back in 10 years while I'm still on this earth. That's not the primary context of a kingdom parable. They're eternal. So when Jesus talks about making an investment, you don't know if you're going to get that return in this vapor of a lifespan. But if you faithfully invest the 10 talents he gives you, you will be entrusted over 10 cities for a billion upon a billion years. 
have you picked out your city yet? I'm completely serious. Have you considered getting an eternal vision and saying, God, I want to be faithful with every little bit you give me? You know what? I, I, have, a, I have a vision for what I want to do with Qatar in eternity. I have a vision for what Rome is supposed to look like. Who wants Greenland? <laughs> I don't, so I'm just hoping someone else does. Cross-country skiers, here we go. Forget it, forget it. Jesus says when he's coming, he says, Behold, I'm coming soon, and my recompense is with me. Your pay for how you invested is coming with Jesus when he comes back. Some are given ten cities, some are given five, and some have everything taken from them because they didn't produce a return, and it's given to the guy who already has ten cities. Here, man, you got more. I love how faithful you are. We are rewarded and we live in eternity based on how we invested our lives in this moment, in this vapor. Each one, he says, I will repay according to what he has done. So I find myself standing with Peter and James and John and Moses and David. What am I thinking in this moment? Do I feel like I'm standing amidst my peers or do I feel like I have no reason to be next to them? Because what they invested, what they gave to bring the kingdom to the earth is so far beyond what I was willing to do. Or do I feel like I gave everything I was able to give? I did, if God asked me, I did it without hesitation. There was nothing more I could have done. I exhausted myself and my resources to bring his kingdom. This is my brotherhood throughout eternity. What do I want to be thinking when I stand next to these guys? What do, what do I want to be thinking the moment I walk up and Paul extends his hand, says, welcome, What do I want my thought to be? What is he going to say when he greets me? Much less Jesus. What about some of our peers? Because we can always easily write off, oh, it's Jesus. So, I mean, obviously. What about Paul? What about Peter? When they come to greet you, what's their greeting going to be? Is it going to be, tell me about how you poured out your life? Or is it going to be, man, what did you do with all of your time? I guess I don't want Paul to approach me and be like, man, you could have done so much, but, you know, you mastered Monopoly. Boardwalk every time. Do I need to change the way I live now to achieve these goals in heaven? Because this is really, really important. Jesus didn't tell us. Jesus did not tell tell us not to want greatness, wealth, or renown. 
He did not tell us to avoid greatness, wealth, or renown. He told us how to seek it eternally. When you lay up treasure, which you should, lay it up in heaven. He didn't say, don't lay up treasure, don't want wealth. Money-loving, greedy. He said, when you do it, this is how you should do it, so that you have an eternity that's bountiful. If you want to be great, this is how you do it. He told us how to accrue wealth, resources, and greatness throughout eternity. It might mean that you lose it all here in this vapor, in this moment, but you will have it age upon age upon age. In heaven. You needn't apologize for wanting to be great in heaven. You simply need to live the right way. Greatness in heaven does not always equate to what people would consider greatness on earth. There's nothing wrong, however, with wanting to be great in heaven. In fact, we're instructed how to do so. I was just thinking about like standing beside Paul, and he's covered in scars from the 40 lashes minus one that he had five times. Um, what will I have to show for my faithfulness? We'll get into this a little bit more later. You know, it's really easy for us to say when we're young, I'll do it tomorrow, you know. I'll, I'll really give myself to God tomorrow. This is the time of life, though, where I'm supposed to get experiences. I'm trying to have the, the most fun I can have right now. I don't really want to buckle down and have to get so serious and intense. But the apostles were called most likely in their teens. And they gave themselves wholly to Jesus to run with him for decades. So it pulls away all of our excuses for, well, I can't do it now, I'm this. I can't do it now, I'm this. I can't do it now, I'm this. It'll look different in every season of life, I assure you. It will not look the same when you have babies at home as it did when you're 22. But you will burn and you can burn with hunger for God and for his kingdom with an eternal vision in every season of life. He made the seasons of life and he made you to burn well in them. You just have to figure out what it looks like from his perspective when you're burning. Because it doesn't matter what the 20-year-old who's at six-hour prayer meetings thinks. It matters what Jesus thinks when he looks at you and you're wiping up, you know, poopy butts and um, snotty noses and chasing around screaming kids in Target. Um, None of you mothers know anything about that. But if you did, if those were your kids, they're not. They're someone else's kids. But if they were your kids, God sees the heart. He knows what a burning heart looks like. That's what matters. That's how we burn from one season to the next. The next thing I had was, did the, the way I spent my time improve my position in heaven? I listed those six questions. This is the next one. Did the way I spent my time improve my position in heaven? When we look at the parable of the talents, like I said, it's got to be applied to an eternal time frame. So, what have you been given 
by God that you are supposed to be investing, which will reap you an eternal reward. It's really important though. What have you been given by God? Not what did you take up upon yourself and say, I'm going to go invest this and he didn't give it to you. That's different. You don't get a reward if he didn't give it to you. I got a couple though, for sure. Some of you guys have these already, some of you don't. But if you're married, God gave you that. How do I know? Because if you entered into an eternal covenant before him, you got something that he entrusted to you, and now you got to be faithful with it. Second thing, kids, who's the author of life? You know the answer. If you have a kid, he gave it to you. Marriage and children are two certainties for you that you know God has given to you for you to steward, invest. They're certainties. Absolute certainties. They're also probably the two in the church which are most frequently overlooked because they're not ministry. They're not glorious. For some of you who are beyond the age of young children, you can affirm this to those who are still in the age of young children. Raising children is not glorious work. Nobody shows up at your door looking for your autograph because you raised a child. It, do, it doesn't go that way. Ministry is glorious. When you get to stand up in front of the big audience and you preach this great message and everyone comes up and they're like, wow, brother, thank you. I was touched. I felt the Holy Ghost and it fell over and had some tongues and all this stuff. And that's glorious. And I'm going to neglect raising my children to pursue that because that gets me attention. That is going to produce a situation where the master returns and he takes what was given to me and he gives it to someone else. Because I neglected the talents which I'd been entrusted in pursuit of one that I wanted instead. Marriage and children are not glorious, but they are, I think they will be the most well-rewarded and the least frequently rewarded talents in heaven. Because people didn't take it seriously. They didn't take their marriage seriously as a talent given to them by God that they needed to steward and invest in and build up and show fruit for. And they did the same thing with their kids, often worse. I just want to be done with kids so I can get on with my ministry and be influential. Kids, they get in the way of my ministry and my career. I can only have, you know, 1.4 kids because I have to be involved in ministry. And I guarantee you, you will regret that throughout all eternity. Here's the good news. You're going to be rewarded for how well you treated your spouse. You want to know why it's really good news? You're going to get rewarded two times. You get rewarded in eternity. And if you treat your spouse good, you're probably going to get rewarded here. And some of you guys who are married know what I'm talking about. I'm not pointing any fingers at the newlyweds. Is he blushing? Anybody looking? <laughs> Just kidding, Micah. <laughs> he's, look at him, he's like a tomato. 
until he's been out in the sun with my brother all day, or if uh, I didn't get him anything. You will be compensated twice for this one, for sure. Um, You'll be rewarded or not, depending on how you treat your children. Did you prioritize your children properly as a talent entrusted to you by God, and did you take the time for them? Did you speak kindly to them, and did you train them up in the way they should go? Did God send you to school? Did he? If he did, your school, here's another gimme. All you have to do is take it seriously. Apply yourself wholly to your studies. That's with the W-H-O-L-L-Y, not a H-O-L-Y. I mean, you could probably go either way, but a few grammar Nazis, that's what it was. Holy. Um, school, what about a job? Did God give you a job? Did he give you anything? But school and job are two really easy ones. They're like jackpots. Give me. They're gimmies for getting yourself an eternal reward. All you have to do is take it seriously. Invest yourself in it. Okay, we're, it's time to get really, we're just going to be honest for a couple minutes. I haven't been honest for the whole time, so I'm going to start now. That's um, a joke. Um, in the workplace, it's probably the most frequently blown opportunity to get a return eternally for your investment that you put in now. What do I mean by that? All you have to do is show up on time. Take a shower before you go to work. It's just a, an idea. Look like you're put together. Take it seriously. Try hard. Do your job well. Try to make your boss look good. These things guarantee you an eternal reward. It's so simple. Your boss may be an idiot, and you may never get a reward out of your boss. But since the Bible says when you work, work as though for the Lord, your boss isn't really the person who signs your paycheck. It's really the Lord Jesus. And he really will reward you whether or not the boss that signs your paycheck will. So you have a gimme opportunity to go in, even if you have a jerk boss, like you work for me, and you have to deal with me all day. If you go in and you apply yourself and you work hard, you're not going to have to not get a reward from me because I'm an idiot. You're going to get a good reward from the Lord because he is a good, just, and fair boss, and he promises it to you. It's so easy and yet so often neglected. Oh my goodness. So often neglected. I, I'm, not, I'm just going to leave it with that. Just take it seriously. It's really easy. And the Lord will reward you eternally for how seriously you take your job and your schoolwork. You remember the programs that they used to have when you were little kids? Like you get an A and you get like a sticker or you get to go get a free movie at family video. And, you know, so the fifth grader can go rent a porn or whatever, whatever. Uh, but that's what they would do. And you really get rewarded eternally for the way that you apply yourself in your schoolwork, in your job, in your home. It's so beautiful. And yet, we so often miss an opportunity to build up wealth for ourselves and greatness in the sight of God in heaven. All the things that you do on the earth that no one sees 
because it was something he gave you to do, you will be compensated for forever and ever. You will enjoy the benefits of payment from God throughout billions upon billions of years for the things that you did that no one ever saw. Did God legitimately call you to ministry? What does that mean? I mean legitimately call you to ministry by, this goes for job, this goes for whatever it is you're doing. Did he call you to it or did you just feel like this is what I'm supposed to do, I should do because this is what Christians do? What did he call you to? If he called you to something, did you stick to it? Did you stay the course? Did you keep pushing when everyone left? Did you stay faithful and stay on track regardless of what you thought it looked like just because he told you to do it? We had experiences where we were doing stuff in little towns and it dwindled to nothing, where literally no kids showed up. And yet the Lord said, one week we weren't going to go. And he rebuked us severely and was like, what are you doing? I said, you're supposed to be there. And we're like, what's the point? There's no kids. That's why we're there. And he said, you're not going there for kids. You're going there because I told you to. Got it. And we went for another four weeks, and kids never showed up. And finally, the Lord was just like, you're done. And then the next week, someone invited us to go, and um, we ended up getting invited to do another ministry in Escanaba that we did for two years at a youth prison. So a lot of kids get saved out of it. I know, I don't know how I know, I just know that that opportunity never would have presented itself had we not remained faithful for those five weeks with no kids. We were not there for the kids primarily. We were there because he told us to do it. We were being faithful. If you were called to ministry, did he call you? And were you a participant or were you a leader? Attending does not equate to ministry. Labor equates to ministry. If you go to work and you're a construction worker... And you show up and you sit down on a block while everybody else is working, you are not going to last long on that crew. Either someone's going to drop a block on your head or you're going to get fired. Ministry should look the same. It means action. It means getting stuff done. Were you faithful? Next question. Was I seeking momentary or eternal reward in the way I spent my time? This is a little bit of a tough one for us, especially as we're young. Um, when I made my choices, was I considering the eternal implications of my decisions? I think that Christians sin primarily when we lose sight of the eternal implications of our actions. Who seriously is foolish enough to go out drinking knowing that it may result in you getting a DUI, losing your job, driver's license, and costing you $1,000 in fees just for a few hours of laughs and a hangover. Who would do that if they thought about it from the back side? Looking back, 50 years, a billion years, who would make that same decision? If I'm standing on this side of eternity and I'm looking back at my life, would I make the same decisions day in and day out, weekend after weekend, month after month? Or would I say, wait a second, 
There's no return coming on that investment. The only thing that's doing is jeopardizing my status in heaven. I need to reconsider my actions. Do you think anyone would, do you think, you know, like, there's a big thing right now in our country where, you know, open marriages, affairs, it's not frequent, but it's not infrequent anymore either. It's more normal. And um, I was thinking about this the other day. Do you think that anyone would destroy their marriage having an affair if they were 30 years down the road and they were looking back at that moment knowing that because of the decision they made there, they lost their marriage, they destroyed their family, they don't get to talk to their spouse about their grandkids and the legacy that they would have had together because of the decision they made in one moment. Do you think anyone would still make that decision? Thinking about, no, nobody's that foolish. But when you lose sight of eternity and you stop looking at things with a long-term vision, a 20-year, 40-year, billion-year vision, you get stuck in a moment and you, you can actually convince yourself that this pleasure eh, it, it's, might be worth what I might jeopardize, and that's when it happens. It's complete foolishness, but it happens repeatedly to Christians when they lose sight of eternity. Any momentary pleasure in which we indulge that sin is because we stopped thinking about how it was going to affect our position in heaven. That's why we do it. You're, you're, you're going to get married in four months, right? And you're engaged, and you're flirting around with your future spouse, and you're in the moment, and things are getting a little bit too exciting, and... If you stop and you go, wait, we're going to be married in four months. We can do this all day, every day. Why are we messing around with this now? And you're going to go, this is silly. And you walk away. But if you don't have a long-term perspective, you will end up doing things that you regret for decades. What about purchases? Loans, taking, borrowing money. I just graduated from college. I got my first job. I need some new wheels, right? Most of us find ourselves in this situation. I got two grand. I can go buy a $2,000 clunker. But I could also get the $30,000 Jeep Wrangler. Lariat. It's got a lift. And a winch. Water tanks on the back. It's got the exhaust that comes at the top. You can go through water this deep. <laughs> but then you end up paying for it for a long, long time. And you can't do a lot of other things because, trust me, when I, was tw- I turned 21 years old, I got my first $8 an hour job. I went out and bought a $28,000 car, truck. Um, that was a little painful. Um, story's not worth telling, but... So I, I've tasted of this very thoroughly, and it's not worth it. It's not worth it. So my point in saying that is, when you're making these decisions, before you just do something, because it, 
you're really, we're good at convincing ourselves that certain things are good ideas, are we not? Yes, we are. Just stop for a second, jump over here and just say, okay, if I'm standing with the apostles in Jesus and I look back at this moment, will I be happy that I invested my time, energy, resources, or body this way? Was I looking for an eternal reward when I made that decision, or was I looking for something only that would last a moment? Blessed art thou. When I make this choice, what will be the effect of it 10, 20, or 100 years down the road? And when I look back at the choices that I have made, am I celebratory over them? And if not, when I look forward at the choices that I'm going to make, what do I need to change about the way that I think about my decisions and how I look at them when I'm making them that will cause me to be celebratory a million years from now? Next question, this one's huge today in our culture. Did I remain faithful? And there's two parts to this. When you find yourself in circumstances where you must take a stand, how do you respond? The second part of it is, was I fa- it's not just about being faithful in making it. Listen, this is not a place where we're just, we don't come here on Thursday nights to talk about being a, a survivalist Christian. What do I mean by a survivalist Christian? I mean... We're not here just going, boy, I just hope that I can stay a Christian until Jesus gets back. I just hope that I can hide out in my church until Jesus gets back and saves me so I don't have to deal with all those big, mean, nasty people outside because I just don't want to lose my salvation. That's not what we're here about. We're here about establishing a kingdom, growing a kingdom, increasing a kingdom, so he's coming back to a kingdom that's already got some roots in the ground. That's what we're trying to do here. So when I say, when I ask, was I faithful? The question is not just did I make it. The question is, did I pour myself out for his sake to see his kingdom come? Did I exhaust my resources and exhaust myself to see his kingdom come on the earth that his name would be known? Or did I just coast along, hoping to arrive in eternity without too many bruises? Listen, like I said, you can't run the same way in every season of life. I'm going to talk about that on Sunday. Um, Every season of life, the way that you run and the way that you burn for God will change. I'm not going to get into it now. So, we're not... To to remain faithful does not mean that we're just trying to stay out of trouble, right? It means that we're willing to get into the right trouble for the right reasons. 1 Peter 2, 20 and 21, it gives us a vision of what this is supposed to look like. And you call it a vision for suffering because Peter writes, What credit is it if you, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? So he's like, if you do something stupid, you get in trouble, you got it coming. But if you do good and suffer for it, and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
For to this you have been called. That's a blanket statement for all Christians. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. What does that mean? It means that there are times in life where you have to take a stand and say, enough is enough. I'm not okay with this anymore. And you are exercising your right to say, this is what has to be because it's good. And then you pay a price for it. We have two different cases that most of us know about because we're Christians and we have heroes that we all like. But Bonhoeffer is one and William Wilberforce is another. Everybody know the story about both of them, right? No? Yes? No? William Wilberforce was a guy in Britain. He, uh, he was largely credited for the abolition of the slave trade. The other guy is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor in Nazi Germany. And he participated in a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler and um, was caught and killed um, for his crime. So you have two cases of two Christian men who said enough's enough. Remember, we now look at William Wilberforce and we go, of course you'd stand up to stop slavery. Nobody likes slavery. Then... It was freakish for someone to take a stand publicly and say, this is horrible. And he did. And it cost him almost literally his life. Um, Bonhoeffer sees what Hitler's doing in Europe, not only to the Jews, but to the Poles and all the rest of Europe. And he says, I'm going to participate in a plot to stop this person, even by force. And it did cost him his life, and he was not successful. But they're both cases of what I'm pointing to where Christians at some point in life have to take a stand and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand for this. I'm going to represent this. I'm not going to let this go on and, without speaking out against it any longer, even though it cost me everything. Multiple, multiple, many, 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 many stories I could tell you about this. But you will come across times in your own life, and some of you have had them and done it, and some of you have had them and avoided it. And you'll know it when you're in the moment where you realize there's a, there's a boundary being crossed where people are representing something that you are opposed to And if you allow it to go beyond you without taking a stand and speaking against it, you've lost. And if you've lost, you need to go back and you need to repent and say, Lord, I want another shot to fight this fight. I'm convinced that David won the battle against Goliath, not because he was a man who could be trusted for one spotlight moment, but because he had won little battle after little battle after little battle after little battle defending his sheep. When a fight arose, he would not back down regardless. If anyone ever knew about it, he fought the fight. The same thing happens in our lives. Guys, if you want the Esther moment or you want the David and Goliath moment, you're going to have to fight a hundred little battles that no one ever knows about to get there. 
I don't think God's going to put you on the stage of that size without first knowing that he can trust you in that moment. Did I remain faithful? It is really hard to make decisions based not on how it will be received in this moment or in this lifetime, but in light of eternity. I know every time I'm faced with one of these situations, it's going through my head, this could cost me everything. This, if I stand up and say this right now, it could cost me everything. And yet, what are you going to choose? So when you stand in the company of the saints, will you regret that you spoke too little? When you stand in the company of the saints and you look at these men who lost their heads, were sawn in half, were crucified upside down, will you feel like you were as vocal as you should have been, or will you go leave their presence, hanging your head, I don't belong here? I hope that you already know I'm going to be able to stand in their company. I have nothing to be ashamed of. I hope you're there today. If you're not, now's a good time to change the way that you're looking at things and treating your life and the vision with which you're making your decisions. Will you regret that you partook in too much pleasure and not enough of value? Or will you be able to celebrate that you too, like Peter, Paul, James, You did all you could, you withheld nothing, and you belong in the company of heaven's most rewarded saints. Paul writes to Timothy, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, Then he goes on to say, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul was looking toward his crown. And he knew if I keep the pedal on the gas, if I stay on the accelerator, I know he can safeguard me through my death. I don't think Paul was thinking when he said he can keep me until that day. I don't think Paul was thinking, oh, Jesus is going to bail me out of this one. I think Paul was thinking he can safeguard my heart and the fear that surrounds me and the timidity that I'm dealing with and get me through my death that I would inherit my crown. close, I just, I want to make clear, in no way am I just encouraging everyone to run out and start some social media frenzy, um, you know, yelling about this and tooting about that, that's, that's not the point of this. My intention here <clears throat> is to cause us to change the perspective from which we make decisions. Consider all things that you're doing and deciding on in light of eternity. You have but a moment to live. 
But the way you spend a billion upon a billion years is going to be determined by the choices that you make and the things you do and the things you say or don't say in this moment that is but a vapor. Your actions and your words bear eternal implications. Use them well. To close with a really simplistic, overly simplistic um, illustration. Um, Have you ever been in an argument? Okay, I've been in arguments. Um, You guys probably haven't. You're really good Christians. Um, Belong in the company of Paul and Peter. Um, But if you've ever been in an argument and um, in this moment you say something and as soon as it's out of your mouth you're like, you ever had that? Maybe it's your mom or your spouse or a dear friend or your brother. And you're in an argument and in a moment it's all right there and it's bubbling up in a moment and you, you say something and the moment it's out you regret it. Sometimes the thing that you say in that moment, you end up regretting not only for a week, but for years. For years, you realize that you damaged this relationship because of something you did or you said in just a moment. There are also those moments where you do something that it doesn't, seem to make sense, you stop and go out of your way on someone else's behalf and you affect their lives positively for the next decade or moments. Or maybe in that argument, rather than blow up and do something you regret, you restrain yourself and you express affection, love, gentleness, and you look back at the next, over the next decades and you realize that moment was a defining moment in your relationship with that person. You have an identical context right here. You will look back at this life and it will be but that one moment in which the pressure was on and you had but a breath to decide. Will we look back at it from eternity's perspective and regret how we spent that moment Or will we look back and know that that moment defined and produced the way that we're living in eternity? So I'm going to pray. And I just really encourage you guys to take some time before God and say, God, I need you to write my heart. And you need you to write my perspective. Because I don't really think about eternity. I don't really think about what cities I want to oversee for billions of years. I want to know, guys. I really do. I want to know. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. Don't you want to know? He's preparing a place for you now. Has any of us ever asked him, hey, Jesus, what's it look like at my place? I want to know before I get there. Because like Paul, if I'm pouring myself out, I have to have something in front of me that I'm looking toward, that I'm clinging to.
So I'm going to pray, and just it's a good time just to say, Lord, help me see like you see. Help me think like you think. I want to see from heaven's perspective. I don't want to make momentary decisions, and I certainly don't want to enter the company of the heroes of the faith and feel like I need to hang my head because I wouldn't pour it out like they would. And then show me, God, how can I pour myself out as a drink offering that I would store up treasure and reward in heaven that I could be amongst my peers when I get there. So, Father, Father, first we thank you for entrusting us with a kingdom that you have given us freely eternity with you, that you have bought us and we are yours. So, God, I just ask that we're, we're so young as a group here and we have so much zeal and so much passion and so much vision. But, Lord, we need your vision. And we want to pour out our passion and we want to spend our zeal on that which will, it will lay up treasure in heaven. It will establish a kingdom that will never end, that will go beyond our vapor. It will be tested by fire and it will endure. That's the labor we want to pour ourselves out for. So Lord, where there are areas of our lives where we're expending ourselves and it's not you and it will not endure and you don't want us there, I just ask that you would bring it to mind even now. Show us that we can let it go and walk away. You give us enough time to do the things you want us doing. If you're calling us to something and we're saying we don't have time, that means we're involved in things that we ought not be involved in. So show us what those things are, Lord, that we can pour ourselves out for you. And Lord, give us a grace to see things in an eternal perspective and make our decisions with eternal implications in mind. We love you. Lord, we look forward to what you are preparing for each of us. God, I just ask that for everybody in this room, you'd, you'd visit them with dreams or visions or whatever, however you speak to each of them, and you'd start to show them glimpses of what's awaiting them and what you're preparing for them in your Father's kingdom. Give them a taste of what's available that goes beyond anything we could ask for or imagine. Let us see it, Lord. Make our, make our eternal home our reality. We love you. We love you. Amen.